today on Ag News Daily. If there's one issue that gets me upset, it's this one. Because everybody in this town, everybody in this town knows that it's a problem. Everybody understands and appreciates that it creates great stress for agricultural producers. Well, listeners, welcome back to our Thursday episode of Ag News Daily. This is Tana Winterhoff alongside Delaney Howell, and today's episode is brought to you by Your Soy Checkoff. How are you doing, Delaney? I'm good, Tanner. How are you this morning? Not too bad. I contemplated opening up with uh, my nickname, Wet Willie, or Worm, <laughs> worm jump, no. Jumping Worm. No, Wet Willie is when you stick your wet finger in someone's ear. Oh, right. It was a wet noodle or something. It's See, I don't know if it's a good nickname if I can't even remember it. I think you're just pretending not to remember it because you don't like it. <laughs> or just want to do to say it and start using it. I can start introducing I can start introducing you that way. I have no problems. <laughs> That's pretty good. What did you discover for news today? Well, Tanner, I've got a few things to report on today as we continue to watch the hard winter wheat tour. We got even lower yields yesterday coming from crop scouts as they reported a 37 per bushel acre yield compared to the day before, which was a 39 and a half bushel per acre yield. They said that drought and heat stress has affected crops in northern and central Kansas, which continue to weigh heavy on their wheat yields that they continue to see coming out of the field. So last year, by comparison, Tanner, USDA had Kansas at about a 52 bushel per acre hard winter wheat yield compared to now 37 and 39 and a half respectively. Yeah. And that's got to be a majority of the acres because I've Mm -hmm. seen a lot of Twitter posts that are either solidifying that average yield and then some that are saying, well, we must be blessed because their crop looks fantastic. So um, certainly going to be an interesting one to watch as this wheat market might continue to take off something else that comes in a little bit lower than expected and that was the russian economy so russians economic growth slowed in the first quarter as the initial impacts of sanctions imposed upon president putin and his invasion of ukraine began to show up so gdp only rose three and a half percent from a year ago that's down from the gain in the previous quarter of four percent according to the Federal Statistics Service on Wednesday, citing that these numbers are preliminary, but they are less than the median forecast of economists at a predicted 3.7. So lower than expected, but we still haven't seen the major impacts as the economists with the World Bank are expecting Russia's financial institutions and companies to continue to fall further behind to maybe trigger a recession with the economy contracting as much as 10% before the end of the year. So still up in first quarter, up less than expected. And now economists are calling for a pullback before the end of 2022. Well, Tanner, along those same lines, of course, part of the reason we could see an economic slowdown is what's going on in Russia, Ukraine. And as we continue to get news out about Ukraine's planting progress and also exports, we've got some updates today. 
Ukraine's Minister of Agrarian Policy continues to paint an optimistic picture to the world, stating that more than 75% of the planned spring crop acreage has been planted so far, although folks are questioning if that is actually accurate. Of course, the planned acreage in total is down an estimated 25 to 30% compared to normal planting levels, but he's still saying that Ukrainian farmers are right on track with where they expected to be this year due to the Russian invasion. Meanwhile, when you look at the export side of things, I know we talked a little bit about it on the podcast yesterday that really potentially they need to be able to get things exported via the ports or we're going to have major disaster there. But they did report 650,000 metric tons of grain over land so far this month, which does keep them on track to match last month's pace of just over a million metric tons, which is a fifth of what was exported prior to the war. So do still need to continue to see how they adjust and adapt and if there are going to be any sort of, uh, I guess, allowances made by Russia to export grain and whatnot out of Ukraine. Although I find it hard to believe that Russia will give in on that front. Yeah, it's interesting to see that this is more of a world power play that says, hey, uh, stop picking on our brother because we still need to use whatever he has for resources. So right. it's kind of interesting to see if, if uh, Putin will say, okay, I will take a break or you can do X, Y, and Z. Uh, but my guess also is, is very doubtful. Why go this far and have this type of a mission um, and not just continue? Exactly. Well, let's take a quick break here for a message from our partner this week. Who mapped the soybean genome? You did. Yes, you. Better varieties are on the way. Today's soybean farmers, that's you, are achieving big breakthroughs in seed. How? By pooling your resources through your soy checkoff. Your soy checkoff research sequenced the soybean genome to help seed companies and other researchers bring better varieties faster to your operation. See all the ways your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org slash hopper. Always great to have partners that support us, but staying across the sea, Tesco. So we reported on this. Tesco is a grocery store chain in the UK. Uh, we had talked about this, but they have agreed to pay their pig farmers even more because the industry is warning of a critical situation with supply and uh, economic pullback. So the UK's biggest supermarket said that farmers are going to get another 6.6 million EU in through August. That's on top of the 3.4 that we originally reported on. They've accelerated and enhanced the payment plan after a lot of criticism came for not paying a fair price for its pork. The latest Tesco is the latest supermarket to hand over extra cash to you to farmers. Uh, after the farmers are currently facing surging costs in feed due to that war in Ukraine. So uh, a recent poll found that four out of five producers would go out of business within a year if they did not receive this extra incentive. The NPA, National Pig Association, also wrote that due to supply chain challenges, there are more than 100,000 pigs stuck on farms that should have already gone to slaughter. So it kind of sounds like, Delaney, they're facing a little bit of the same things we did 
at the beginning of COVID when we were struggling to get labor in our packing plants. Right. That's what I was just thinking as well, Tanner. Which, just to take two stories in a row, uh, leads me to announcing that the House Ag Committee on Wednesday narrowly approved a bill that would form a special position, a task force position to investigate the allegations of antitrust practices within the meat and poultry processing industry. So uh, it did get passed, Delaney. It was split 27-21, but they did advance the Meat and Poultry Special Investigator Act of 2022. Uh, so it was good to see that that moved forward, but I'm surprised at how close that vote was. Yeah, I saw that piece of news as well, Tanner, and glad you made sure we reported on it. But yes, was very surprised at how close that was. I guess I, I guess I had thought that there were, there was more support on that from both sides, really. I didn't, first, I didn't realize the ag committee was that big. I mean, (laughs) you're talking, you're talking just shy of 60 members, but agreed on an ag committee. I, I was surprised that there wasn't more, uh, more support. But I, I, to be honest, I haven't looked through who voted and in what way. So I guess maybe that would shed some light as to why there was that really close split. But Tanner, that was pretty much my final story is stole from me. So I don't have too much <laughs> else to report on except markets. So what about you? All right, let's pause real quick for a message from our partner and I will hit one last story. Who mapped the soybean genome? You did. Yes, you. Better varieties are on the way. Today's soybean farmers, that's you, are achieving big breakthroughs in seed. How? By pooling your resources through your soy checkoff. Your soy checkoff research sequenced the soybean genome to help seed companies and other researchers bring better varieties faster to your operation. See all the ways your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org slash hopper. Each week, Delaney, I have kind of been fallen into the ethanol reporting side of things. The last piece that I have to share for today is that ethanol output was unchanged week to week. So if you remember back last year, last week, uh, we were up. We had gotten back to our highest point since March. Um, so we are unchanged for output. However, the inventories have fell now to the lowest level since mid-January. So it's according to the Energy Information Administration. Production of biofuel remained at that 991 barrels a day on average for the week that ended May 13th. In the Midwest, we are still by far the biggest producing region, um, but offsetting the declines and the gains were extreme uses in three out of four regions. So uh, East Coast jumped, Gulf Coast jumped, um, West Coast was unchanged, but those stockpiles are still falling. Uh, we now fell to 23.79 million barrels in that week period. That's down from the 24.14 million barrels we reported upon last week. Yes, absolutely. I saw that piece of news as well. So I'm glad that you were on top of it because I obviously was not. <laughs> we got your back. Yeah, thanks. One thing I am on top of today, Tanner, is the markets. We are starting to really see markets react to every little piece of weather news, whether that is coming out of the wheat tour, whether that is planting progress report. And we might be getting close to at least the short-term rally here in grains if we don't see some sort of new weather event take shape, uh, i.e. drought 
taking hold in key areas, which it is obviously for wheat country, but corn and soybeans are still continuing to get some of those key rains that are needed after planting. And we're also starting to see planters continue to plant extremely fast. So today we're surprisingly trading higher with that all being said, uh, September and December corn up about a penny to two pennies here. Soybeans really extremely higher today. Not sure what's going on if it's just reactions to this India wheat ban, India palm oil ban or what, but there's definitely something in the water today. Soybeans in the August contract and July contract are up about 25 to 29 cents. New crop beans up about 15 cents and wheat significantly lower today, down about uh, 12 to 16 cents across the board. Livestock are mixed today, although reading through some commentary this morning, Tanner, it sounds like the cattle herd is likely going to get smaller and have some issues due to potential lack of grazing. So could see some longer term uh, rallies here in the cattle complex as feeders and stockers and all those folks are trying to figure out how to feed those animals and potentially see a liquidation of of those heads. So that's going on in the livestock market today. Aside from lean hogs, which are also lower today, again, haven't seen any headlines really to point to what's going on there, but pretty much 50, 80 cents lower. So not huge uh, losses today on the board. But Tanner, as we turn our attention to today's interview, it's going to be a little bit different because we are playing an interview, or I guess a Maybe a media gaggle is a better way to describe it. So essentially, when I was in Washington, D.C., you know, we had all of these legislators come and sit in front of a room of farm broadcasters, and it's open fire on these folks as far as what we ask them. And so Vilsack is who we're going to share today. So Tanner, let's just maybe bounce back and forth here as we share some of the broadcast questions. We didn't get those on mic, but Tanner and I have the list of questions that we are going to ask or that we did ask Vilsack a couple of weeks ago in D.C. And I'll warn you folks, audio wasn't super great at the USDA, surprisingly. Tanner? Yeah, it's not a surprise, you know, with the resources (laughs) that they have. uh, We can just add that to the long list of things that they could do better. Well, certainly, no doubt, it was a little frustrating, as we all, farm broadcasters, understand the uh, the necessity of high-quality audio. This is not that, but I think, nonetheless, Vilsack does have some good comments to share with us today. So, Tanner, let's get over to his first address here, which talks a lot about the stakes this year higher due to increased cost of production, the food security questions that we've been talking a lot about on the on the podcast. The question was posed, do you think programs like the Revenue Protection Program or PLC crop insurance need adjustments or are these programs an adequate safety net? I don't think that we're at that point where we believe that uh, that we're not able to provide assurances to to our to our farmers and ranchers and producers that the safety net that's been put in place is going to be inadequate to the time. You know, I think one of the challenges that we face is as we continue to diversify agriculture and as we continue to see the impacts of a, of a changing climate, I think we are learning the need for versatility and, and uh, flexibility in our disaster approach to disasters. You know, I think the fact that we, uh, the Congress had to appropriate an additional $10 billion under what is commonly referred to as the WIP Plus program out there in the countryside is a reflection of the fact that the disaster programs that we have uh, probably need to be looked at very carefully and closely and need to be able to be flexible enough to understand that a disaster in the West is 
potentially different than a disaster in the southeast, which is potentially different than a disaster in New England. Um, and the crop uh, commodity disasters oftentimes uh, play differently in different parts of the country. Uh, one size doesn't fit all. Uh, and I think what we learned during the pandemic uh, with a number of the pandemic assistance programs is the need for us to be very sensitive to to uh, the complexity of American agriculture. Um, you know, when we had the CFAP program, it was distributed in a way that a number of producers were left out uh, of that program. And so, and we saw greater participation, particularly by small socially disadvantaged producers. So I, I think the area of concern that I have is in that is in that space as opposed to whether or not the safety net programs are, are adequate. To so that was an interesting perspective. I'm glad that he shared his point of view, as I know a lot of our listeners will have some of their own. And the next one that we rolled into is, is a question around what one thing or issue is that he has focused on. So asking, what's one issue that he focuses on? What's playing out in his mind right now that keeps him up at night? The one thing that keeps going through my mind is why did I take this job again? (laughs) But but to be responsive to your question, um, there is a, a, this notion of balance and flexibility is going to be a reoccurring theme here, I think, in responses to the questions you all have. You know, my concern is that we calibrate the importance of production and profit. Uh, And when I say that, I mean, Clearly, the world is going to need more production uh, in terms of the, being able to make up for the production losses that are going to occur in Ukraine. We know uh, that under the best-case scenario, from what we know from satellite technology and so forth, that a relatively small percentage of the traditional planting uh, in Ukraine is taking place. We also know that they are are stressed in terms of their access to uh, the the basics to be able to make sure that that crop is a successful crop. And we know that there will be issues relative to where that crop goes uh, in terms of uh, the ports that are currently uh, at risk. Uh, And so the world is basically now concerned about, are we going to have enough to be able to satisfy the need of developing countries in North Africa, uh, countries that are, are themselves not particularly uh, stable uh, and with a lack of food could be very much unstable. And so how do you make sure that American agriculture responds as it traditionally and historically always has responded to the crisis of the day by saying, you know, we're here to help? Uh, Doing that in a way that also maintains uh, the the pricing to uh, one of the reasons why the input costs are, well, well, a concern, but they, they would be a greater concern if, if corn were selling at $3 a bushel instead of where it is today. So how do you keep that in mind uh, as you try to maintain profitability for producers? You try to encourage more production to satisfy the humanitarian need uh, and to do it in a way that uh, also does right by the climate. That's a pretty tricky balancing act. Now, I, I think we're we're navigating it, uh, you know, We our CRP program, we basically trusted farmers. We said, look, here's the program. You all can make the right decision for your operation. We trust you. Uh, and, indeed, farmers have made that decision. We're basically saying, look, uh, if you have the opportunity to double crop 
we ex- we understand and appreciate that there are risks associated with that. How can we help mitigate those risks, which is why the president's uh, Ukraine package uh, includes additional resources to minimize the risk of a, of, of a double, double cropping circumstance and situation. Um, we, we also appreciate and understand that the, there are climate issues that have to be addressed, and that's why the Climate Smart Partnership Initiative is put, put together. So we're trying to create um, a, a lot of balance here, uh, and anything could tip it one way or the other. Um, but I, I will tell you that our folks are, are working hard, uh, and they, they care deeply, and I know the producers out there understand that. Peter, along those same lines, too, you know, he's already served as the Secretary of Agriculture under the Obama administration. So another broadcaster had the question, why did you take this role again? What motivated you? Well, no one's ever done this before at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. No one's ever come back. Um, there, there have been people who have served consecutive uh, administrations, but no one did. And so this is a, uh, an opportunity to learn. The way I answer that question is it's a simple answer. Um, I love the people I work with. The people who work at USDA are just really dedicated folks. When you see the amount of work that is churned through this department in a, in the midst of a pandemic last year, the last fiscal year, 21, it's the numbers I have in my head, they did 53,000 home uh, farm loans uh, at USDA. There were over 43,000 conservation contracts that were approved and, and uh, providing help and assistance to, to producers. There were 137,000 home loans that were done at USDA, 137,000 families who had the pride of home ownership because of the work at USDA. We, we purchased uh, 9.9 billion pounds of food for distribution to food banks and, and uh, the school lunch programs. We helped to feed 30 million kids at schools. You know, the list goes on and on and on. We helped uh, several thousand businesses with home, with business loans and business grants and communities. We did about 800 to 900 grants for local and regional food systems. So when you see the magnitude of the work that's been done, the Forest Service uh, and the tremendous work that they have to do to keep fires contained and things of that nature, uh, it's pretty amazing. And I, I love the people I work for, the folks out there in rural America. Um, they're good, hardworking folks. They care about themselves and their families and their communities and their country. And I think they're appreciative of the work that's done on their behalf at the Department of Agriculture. So it's a it's a relatively easy thing to do, and it's an, an incredibly uh, honor. It's an incredible honor. I've known President Biden for, for over 30 years, um, and I've not been able to figure out how to say no to the guy. So, again, it is always interesting to find out the motivation behind a lot of decisions. You know, this is certainly a high-profile role, uh, but with high-profile and increased demands of your responsibilities, uh, another reporter had asked what he saw his biggest trade opportunities were and what the biggest challenges are. There are, I think, a number of opportunities from a trade perspective, uh, which is why we're focusing our trade mission, uh, several aspects of our trade mission on, on uh, Europe and the U.K. There's an opportunity there, especially the U.K., having uh, sort of distanced itself from, from the EU it now has perhaps more flexibility in terms of some of the tough issues that have made it harder for us to have trade conversations with uh, with the EU. Uh, I think uh, the fact that there's a trade mission uh, being proposed to Kenya and, and to Rwanda indicates and suggests the the importance of getting a foothold, if you will, in, in the African continent. Our European friends understand the challenge and the opportunity there uh, with the growing populations and 
in some countries, more stable governments uh, resulting in a stronger economy, rising middle class, more consumption of protein, uh, plays to the strengths of U.S. agriculture. Uh, the obvious uh, answer to your question would obviously be Southeast Asia as well for the same reason. Uh, it's the, it's uh, the, the reason why uh, there's a uh, you know, mission to, to the Philippines if you take a look at where and uh, G20 meeting in Indonesia for, for that purpose. And so... And, and I think it's important to do all of that as a counterweight and a counterbalance to an over-reliance and over-dependence on one market, which is China. When you ask the question, you know, where are the concerns? Well, uh, the concerns are are in China, not necessarily because of the trade relationship, because that continues to, to you know, to be a significant one. It's because there are other factors within that relationship that that could at some point in time disrupt that relationship. They could make a decision not to not to trade. Uh, I think that they're going to continue to need us given the, the challenges of Ukraine. They get a lot of their corn from Ukraine, for example. Where are they going to get it now that Ukraine has a hard time to growing it or exporting it? So I think I, I, my belief is it will continue to see a relationship there, but I think it would behoove us to be much more uh, less reliant on that single market and more reliant on And actually, Tanner, this next question was my question, because as we've continued to talk about avian influenza here on the podcast, we are starting to see less and less cases reported. But I wanted to know, because he was quoted, you know, about a month ago, stating he didn't think avian influenza levels would get to 2015 levels, but we have still continued to see new cases reported. So I asked for his current outlook on it now. We're getting to the point where temperatures are going up um, and we expect and anticipate that we're going to begin to see. And I think we have started to see a downturn in the number of incidences and the, and, and the, uh, uh, the circumstances. So I don't necessarily think we're going to get to the 50 million bird situation that we had in, in 2015. And I think part of the reason we're not is because I think our producers are doing a better job from a biosecurity perspective. I that you asked that question because it has made a lot of headlines. Uh, it's hit here close to home, been, been local. So it was good to get to the bottom of that. And another issue that a lot of our listeners face, especially in season, is finding good help. So the next question that was asked was where he sees labor shortages going and, and where labor modernization is headed in regard specifically to the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. Well, I'm confident that if there was the political courage to get it passed, it would certainly provide greater stability uh, to the workforce and greater assurances to uh, producers across the country that there would be adequate numbers of workers. If there's one issue that gets me upset, it's this one. Because everybody in this town, everybody in this town knows that it's a problem. Everybody understands and appreciates that it creates great stress for agricultural producers. Everybody in this town knows how to solve the problem. In fact, they don't even have to really work hard at solving it because the industry and labor came together and said, here's the solution. You don't have to compromise. You don't have to. Let me just talk about food security generally. I'm really proud of the work we're doing in this space. We started by taking a look at the SNAP program. It's a program that basically impacts around 43 million people today. Uh, the SNAP program uh, historically has received uh, increases by virtue of inflation. But the SNAP program has, in 45 years of its existence, has never had a review of the foundation of the program to determine whether it was still adequate for families. 
So this administration took it upon itself to take a look at food prices, to take a look at what people are currently buying in the grocery store based on surveys, take a look at the activity level of American families, and to take a look at the dietary guidelines and ask the question, is is the Thrifty Food Plan, which is the foundation for SNAP, is it designed and is it working and is it being implemented in a way that that reflects the reality of American families? And it turned out, no, it's not. Uh, it turned out that there needed to be an adjustment and an increase in that floor, in that foundation. During the course of the pandemic, and even today, with the Pandemic EBT Assistance Program, we're basically saying to families whose children are free and reduced lunch, hey, we get it. We know that it's tough. We know that it's you're having a hard time. We know that during those summer months, for example, uh, when schools stop serving meals uh, or you don't have access to a summer feeding site, you want to make sure your kids are well-fed. We're providing uh, resources. I just got a report today that many, many, many states are now filing their plans for pandemic EBT during the summer, which is good. We've seen an expansion of the summer feeding program. Uh, our WIC program, 6.3 million women and children benefiting from this program, but the sad reality is that's only 50% of the eligibles. So we're committed, uh, committing resources to figure out what more can we do with state agencies to be able to get more people in that program. When schools uh, were faced with uh, the dilemma of the supply chain disruption, and they basically put their menus together only to find out the day before they have to serve the but there is no hamburger to serve, we stepped forward and provided extensive relief uh, to, to, to school districts and encouraged Congress to continue the waiver that would have increased reimbursement levels, continue an increase of reimbursement levels. Congress has chosen not to do that. That is an unfortunate decision that Congress has made, and it's going to cause some serious difficulties this fall. This is a decision that Congress has made, not this administration, Congress. So, what are we, we're now looking at ways, limited ways in which we can provide additional flexibility, additional help and assistance to be able to make sure that those school districts have at least a shot at being able to, to take care of our kids. We're doing a lot. I don't think there's an administration has done in, in, a, in a considerable period of time has done more than what we're doing. Um, in fact, I think we've done the most of, of any administration in quite some time uh, on, on, on food security. And we've also basically said to the country, it's not just about feeding people, it's about feeding people well. Well, Tanner, again, that was Secretary Bill Sack a couple of weeks ago in Washington Watch when I had the opportunity to sit down with him along with many other farm broadcasters. It was a little disappointing in taking on the trip with you. I know the business had to get <laughs> done here at home, so uh, obviously Cassidy and I took the reins, but as we were listening to this conversation with Secretary Vilsack, uh, local news alert popped up on my phone. So coming out of Des Moines, Iowa, it says Iowa pig farmers are raising a stink because they want to sell their products to the state that annually consumes 15% of all their U.S. pork. So do you know what state that is, Delaney? Um, I was going to guess California just because of the Prop 12 stuff, but I'm unsure. Correct. So it is California, and the Supreme Court has agreed to hear the challenge to the California animal welfare law. So that is, again, in regards to pork sold in the state that come from farms, and they obviously wanted them to be more spacious. So 
uh, it's good to see here. We will stay in touch with this and probably have an update for you tomorrow. But breaking news is that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear that case. And that is big breaking news, Tanner, because this is the final step that pork producers could take before we for sure have to follow suit with the Prop 12. So really, this is the final step to determine, is this going to go into effect or not? So listeners, tune in tomorrow. Hopefully we have more information and news on this. But for today, Delaney, should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. 